Good morning. One of my favorite Christmas carols is Joy to the World. And it is a classic. It was not originally written as a Christmas carol. You probably know this story. In 1719, when Isaac Watts wrote it, it was just a poem that he wrote about Psalm 98 and really a poem about the second coming of Christ, not his first coming. Then in the 1800s, some musicians picked it up and said, man, this is, this is great stuff. Um, and they uh, worked it into a Christmas carol about the first coming of Christ because there's so much language in it that is true of both the first and second coming of Christ. And so presto, you now have this famous Christmas carol that it, it might be the most published Christmas carol. I, I don't know, it's, it's in the top three for sure. Joy to the World, we're gonna sing it in a few minutes. Um, if you've listened closely to Joy to the World over the years, you probably noticed a change. So most popular renditions, Pentatonics, uh, Faith Hill, um, even for king and country, leave out the third verse, the third stanza, which I think is the most important stanza. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns, what, infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. You can't, like, the song is not the same song without the third verse. Without the third stanza, the curse remains on us and all of creation continues to groan under the weight of the curse. So without the third stanza, stanza there's really no gospel in the song, joy to the world, right? Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. The, the world doesn't need a Savior so much if there's not this sustained curse um, doesn't need a savior at all. So apart from the bad news of the curse, the good news really isn't good news, right? Apart from the bad news, the good news doesn't make sense. Joy to the World is a song about the good news of the reign of Christ on the earth. That is exactly what Isaiah 4 introduces us to. So if you have your copy of Scripture this morning, turn to Isaiah chapter 4, and I want to read this, it might be the shortest chapter in the book of Isaiah. We're going to read chapter 4, and uh, I want you to follow along. And as we're reading chapter 4, listen for the beautiful and righteous reign of Christ on the earth, and watch for the undoing of the curse. All right? Isaiah chapter 4, and we begin in verse 2. In that day... The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Verse 3, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord, verse 4, shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. 
There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Lord, would you help us this morning as we come and worship, as we sit under the authority of your word, as we think about how Messiah could come and undo this curse that has been found to touch everything. Lord, by your spirit this morning, bring to life your word and teach us about the amazing work of the Messiah. We pray this in his name and for his sake, amen. Let me walk through this with you. Uh, I want to answer three questions as we walk through the passage. The first one is this, who is the branch of the Lord? So did you notice that in verse 2? Isaiah refers to someone as the branch of the Lord. So we're just going to try to answer that question first. Who is the branch of the Lord? Who or what in verse 2 is, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Do you see that? So the consistent answer of church history is that the branch of the Lord is a metaphor that refers to the promised Messiah, that it refers to a person, that this branch is actually a person, that this branch is a promised Messiah. The word branch uh, really becomes a technical term in the prophets. You see it in Isaiah, you see it in Jeremiah, you see it in Zechariah. It becomes a technical expression for this messianic figure that that God's people are waiting for. A couple of examples, Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute righteousness and judgment. Or Zechariah 6, 12, for example. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. So what you have going on in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah is this sort of pattern of the branch is a person. The branch is is the expected Messiah. And so, like, how does that work? What would that mean? A couple of things. So the, the metaphor conveys at least two things, and hopefully this will make a little more sense of it. Number one, a branch is always connected to a what? A branch is connected to a tree, right? Branch is connected to a tree, but not just any tree, so the metaphor is a family tree. That's the picture. The image is is of a family tree, the family tree of David. So what you have is a branch that's tied back to a thicker branch, that's tied back to a thicker branch, that gets to the trunk, right? So this metaphor, this image, is that that David's kingly family tree uh, is, is, is sprouting forth branches in fulfillment of promise, and there's coming one day the branch of the Lord. So we just said together, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, as we're trying to, to memorize Isaiah 11 together and, and kind of hide it deep in our hearts, we just recited this. There shall come forth a shoot. What's a shoot? A shoot is a new uh, sprout of life that's going to turn into a branch. The shoot's going to turn into a branch. And where does it come from? It comes from the, the stump or the trunk of Jesse. And who is Jesse? Jesse is David's father. What are we talking about? We're talking about David's family tree. That's what's happening here. So the Messiah is who Isaiah has in mind. He is the branch of the Lord. 
And that's why the gospel writers of the New Testament always, you see this again and again, you see it in Matthew, you see it in Luke very clearly, they always tie the birth of Jesus directly to the city of David, to the lineage of David, just as we read a few minutes ago in the Advent reading. So, so that's the picture that, that, that's being conveyed with the idea of branch. And there's one other element of it, and you see it in, verse, in the very first line, right? Verse 2, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. You, you can see the flourishing uh, aspect of the metaphor, of, of, of the image. A branch is new life. A, blanch, a branch, uh, a healthy branch is flourishing. And, and from his roots, there will be fruit that will be produced. There'll be life and flourishing. We'll come back to that idea in just a second um, in our third, uh, in answering the third question. So that's where we are, number one. That's who the branch of the Lord is. Let me answer, try to answer a second question. When is that day? Do you see that expression right there in verse two? In that day? Right, so kind of mark that as a, another, another important phrase or word. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. What's happening here? What is that day? So Isaiah is an 8th century B.C. prophet, right? So he's prophesying a long time ago. When he says in that day, is he talking about a day soon to come in his own lifetime? Or is he talking about years down the road? Or is he talking about the final day in the end? Right? This is what we're trying to sort of process. When he says in that day, what does he have in mind? Well, it would help you to know that the prophets like to use this phrase also uh, very frequently. And when they do, sometimes they mean in that day, in the cataclysmic judgment day of God, which often signals the final day. Other times, they mean in that day, a beautiful time of restoration, like when the Messiah comes, in the day of the Lord. You even hear that in the New Testament. Like the, you'll, you'll hear the New Testament apostles speak of the day of the Lord, not just in terms of judgment, but also in, in terms of the remaking of the whole world and making all things right. It, the Christ event is the fulfillment of, of the restoration of things. And so when, when a prophet uses this, this phrase, that day, you kind of have to decide, is he talking about the good stuff or the hard stuff? Is he talking about the good news or the bad news? Well, this is really interesting. Isaiah does both. Let me show you what I mean, right? Remember we said there's patterns of judgment and then patterns of hope last week? So if you weren't here last week, we talked about one of the ways to read Isaiah is, is to see recurring patterns in his, in his book. And one of those important patterns is judgment, 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 hope, 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 right? He'll keep coming back and forth between judgment and hope. That's exactly what we have in front of us right now. Chapter two and three, heavy heavy judgment tied to the expression that day. Let me show it to you. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day. A day of universal humiliation. That's kind of what's being conveyed here. A day of a day when, look at this, verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and all that is lofty and all that is lifted up. It will be brought down by God in that day. Drop down to verse 20. In that day, all of mankind 
will cast away their idols. Go to chapter 3, verse 18. Mark it again. In that day. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. Because really chapter 4 probably begins in verse 2. So verse 1 ends that segment. What's he doing? Isaiah is building this, this sort of accumulation of, of utterly humiliating judgment that has a universal tone to it. It seems, it seems uh, big word, eschatological. It seems like it's coming at the final day, at the end. But then it changes in chapter 4, verse 2, in this small segment of hope. And that's what I want you to hear this morning. Yes, that day will be a day of judgment, but it will also be, in Isaiah's mind, a day of great hope and restoration. So that when we get to 4.2 through 6, we, uh, we are reading about the day when, when the time of salvation and restoration will come through the Messiah. In that day, so now he's talking about a different day. He's not talking about the same. So it, at least there's two aspects to this day, uh, this season of time. And, 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 and we might say more than that, but at the very least, there's, there's a huge shift that has occurred. So this utterly humiliating scene now turns into a scene of restoration and cleansing and, and renewal and a remaking of the world. So in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and He's going to bring some amazing effects that will change the world. And that's what Isaiah describes in 2 through 6. Now, we don't know exactly, we don't see in, in Isaiah exactly when this is going to happen. So you immediately say to yourself, okay, is he talking about the first coming of Christ? Or is he talking about the second coming of Christ? That's what I'm asking myself. Is he talking about the first advent or is he talking about the second? This passage sounds a lot like the second coming of Christ. There does sound like there's a finality just like we saw in chapters two and three. It does sound like there's a finality and yet we learn from the gospels that from the nativity on, Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, is born in Bethlehem to be a king, destined to be a king. So much so that when Herod finds out that he's going to be born, he's feeling his own kingdom threatened. And he gathers the chief priests and scribes and says, what's going on? They start quoting Micah the prophet to him. They say, look, this is a ruler coming out of Bethlehem. And Herod is like, I, hey, where's he going to be? Because I'm going to go worship him. He's not going to go worship him. He's, he wants to deal with this. He's feeling threatened by his kingdom. And then Jesus, as he grows up and is walking around all the time, he's saying things like, the kingdom of God is here. Right now, as I stand here and live and breathe, the kingdom of God is with you. He's blowing people's minds. And then in his torturous death on the cross, he's pronounced king of the Jews, right? Mockingly by the world, but worshipfully by those who trust him and love him. And three days later, in his 
resurrection, he is declared to be the rightful son of David's throne by the power of the Spirit who raises him from the dead. So all throughout Jesus' life, from beginning to end, he is king. He's the coming king. He's inaugurating the kingdom. He's bringing the kingdom of God near to us. So does Isaiah have the first advent of the king in mind or the second coming of the king in mind? Because he is talking about a person. Clearly he's talking about a person, a man, right? We talked about that with the branch. This is a real person. This is a real man who's going to come and rule and sit on the throne of David. Does Isaiah have the first advent in mind or the second advent in mind? Well, probably a little bit of both. Probably both. His vision does not describe the Messiah's coming in detail. So you don't get first coming, second coming. You don't get it neatly like that. But you get it. You still get it very clearly. He sees this vision of the Messiah from a distance. But still, we see it clearly. Let me, let me illustrate. Let's suppose you saw Mount Everest on a clear day from far away, from an airplane or from base camp, somewhere far away, but you could see it clearly. Massive, amazing, beautiful Mount Everest. There's no way for you to imagine the scale of it. Its height, its mass, its proportion, its length and breadth, but that would not keep you from sending pictures to a friend, would it? No, you would be snapping it up all day long and you'd be sending pics. That's exactly what Isaiah does. It's not his intention to, to scale the proportion of the depth of this mountain peak that he sees off in the distance. It is his intention to say, this is amazing. You gotta see this picture. There's coming a day when the Messiah is going to do amazing things. Right? He's going to do amazing things. He's going to, there's coming a day that's going to be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. God's going to do something in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the city of Zion to restore the world. The whole remaking of the world is going to come out of the center of this place. And the Messiah is the one who's going to affect it and make it happen. Now, in this vision of renewal, we, we will see like the undoing of the curse. That's, that's what I'm trying to say this morning. Messiah's coming to reverse the curse. Because if we've learned anything this year, it's that things are not the way it's supposed to be. Have you learned that this year? <laughs> Has 2020 taught you that things are not the way they're supposed to be? We live in a cursed world. Oh, that's a little harsh. Anyway, we, we don't live in a cursed world. We're just in a world where, where the yin and the yang are trying to figure each other out. No, no, no. We live in a cursed place. You got to hear the bad news before the good news makes sense. We live in a cursed place. Death and disease and depression will leave a sickening stain on every page of the history books in 2020. It will be there. So what should we do? Cross our fingers and hope for the best in 2021. Fingers, fingers, fingers. Is that how we roll? That's not how Christians think. Christians live more like Simeon, 
who in Luke chapter 2 came by the Spirit into the temple, took up the infant Jesus in his arms and said in that dedicatory moment in the temple, this is the consolation of Israel. I'm holding in my hands the one who will bring salvation to the whole world. Now I can depart this world in peace, he says. This Messiah is coming to bring peace and flourishing back to the world. How can the curse be undone? So in verses 2 through 6, Isaiah starts to detail out in his vision, uh, uh, the, the, not the timing of this, but the, what it looks like that the Messiah would reverse the curse. And he gives a fairly comprehensive perspective. He talks about the land, he talks about the people, and he talks about the environment. The land, the people, and the environment. He says, Messiah's gonna come and recreate the land, the people, and the environment. The land in verse two, the fruit of the land, which in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures always has more at work in it than simply Jerusalem or Palestine. The environment in verses five and six where he's gonna recreate a beautiful safe haven for his people, a canopy, a place that'll be like the forever exodus uh, pillar of cloud by day and fire by night where God's presence was known. So you got the land, the environment, but I wanna dial in on the people because here's what he does for people. Look at verse four. Here's what he does for people in the remaking of the world. There's a really interesting phrase here, verse four. When the Lord shall have washed away. The time he's talking about in that day, sometime way off in the future, Isaiah says, God is going to, it's put in this tense, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst. When he shall have done that. That's really interesting. He's talking about the work of the Messiah. This is amazing. He says, he says this, this is gospel language. He says, the work of the Lord by a spirit of judgment and cleansing is all tied to the Messiah. Now think about that, that's got, that's got Trinitarian implications. He says, the work of the Lord by a spirit of judgment and cleansing, some commentators think this is a direct reference to the Holy Spirit, and it's tied, and it's tied clearly to the work of the Messiah. This is gospel language, especially verse four. That day, in that day, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of, who can wash away the filth of people? Who can cleanse the accumulated blood stains and guilt of people? And how will he do it? He'll do it by a spirit of judgment and cleansing. This is what's so amazing to me. This is fascinating because this is exactly what the New Testament says Jesus came and did. He worked as a representative of God by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. We're memorizing this. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. In obedience to God, the Spirit of the Lord helps him, and he comes and effects a cleansing and a purging and a washing of people's sin. Where were the apostles getting this stuff? You gotta ask yourself that. They were getting it from the prophets. They were getting it from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah. So 
How can the curse be undone? How can the accumulated guilt of sin, how can the environment be made right? How can be the, how the whole world, can it be changed and remade? This is all the work of the branch of the Lord in a beautiful and glorious day. This is the gospel in Isaiah. How are you going to get your filthy heart clean? How are you going to get the blood stains of your guilt out? Only the Messiah can do that. By the Spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning and cleansing. The three young men who are going to be baptized at the 11 o'clock service, Nathan, Tristan, and Logan, are coming to say to the church and to the world who's watching, somebody's cleansed me from within. Somebody has paid for my sin. Somebody has exchanged my sin for their righteousness. Like I'm gonna come into the waters of baptism and I'm gonna be washed. I'm, I'm, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into the water symbolically. I will go into the water dirty and I will come up washed and clean. That's the beauty of baptism. A cleansing and a washing that only the Spirit of God through the work of the Messiah could ever affect in any person. This is the answer. This is what we believe Christianity teaches. The solution to the problems of this world are in and through Jesus, the Messiah, the branch of the Lord, who is beautiful and glorious. Let me see if I can tie all this together with one of my favorite books. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Ooh, it's story time. You waking up, some of you guys? All right, listen to this. This is at the end of the book. After Aslan has already made his way to the stone table and been left there to die, but he's not dead. And when Susan and Lucy are grieving and mourning and walking around, they hear this voice and they realize it's Aslan behind them. And they look around and they're, What? Lucy's like, Are you a ghost? No. Do I look like a ghost? No, you look very real. Oh, you're so real, Aslan. But what does all this mean, asked Susan. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper than she did not, that she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known, listen to this, she would have known that when a willing, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack. The stone table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And the curse would be reversed. She had no idea that was going to happen. And that is, for Lewis, a way of saying that when it looked like Satan was winning, 
when it looked like the witch was winning, God was conquering on the cross sin, hell, and death. And at that moment, literally reversing the curse so that in the resurrection of the Son of God, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in His first coming, death and the curse began to be turned back on itself. We definitely wish it would happen faster because we're living between the first and the second coming. But it's happening. And so in hearts, like those being baptized today, in families who are reclaiming their home for Christ, in communities that continue to yield to the gospel, there is a reworking of life that's happening, even in the midst of the cursed world that we live in. So when we sing, joy to the world in just a second, I want to ask you to think about verse 3 and how it has both already begun and not yet been fulfilled. We're going to think about both of those as we sing. And let's ask God to begin in our own hearts to reverse the curse. If you're not yet a believer, if you're seriously considering trusting Christ, if you'd like to know what all this means, man, it sounds like you're talking a lot of code this morning. I'd like to know more. We would love to talk further with you about it. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing and ask the Lord to help us have true joy in Christ. So would you pray with me? Lord, there is deep joy in those who, have known, who know you as a Savior. We know you today as the Savior. We thank you that you came not just to save us, but you came to save as far as this curse is found. God, thank you that what happened way back in Genesis 3 has begun to be undone and radically changed through the new, beautiful, glorious life of the Messiah. Teach us that. Help us to sing it with joy and sing it with confidence. We pray today in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond in gospel song this morning.